SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing Show 40 with guest Miha Kral. Our guest today is Miha Kral. As Senior Architect in Microsoft's Platform Architecture team, Miha is responsible for leading architectural communities and helping the global architectural profession to mature and grow to meet the strategic challenges of the changing IT landscape. He joined Microsoft in 1998 as a consultant where he worked on major projects across Eastern Europe and the Asia-Pacific region. Prior to Microsoft, he worked with IBM Corporation in Central and Eastern Europe He's a Microsoft Certified Architect, a Project Management Professional, and a Certified Information Systems Security Professional. Welcome, Mia. Welcome. Um, I'm actually very happy to be on this call, and I need to say I am amazed how mouthful it sounds, because personally, I don't think that I did (laughs) that much in IT at all. (laughs) In fact, uh, what what I should set the stage for people, I suppose, the... uh, uh, where I uh, came across you recently is you did the lock note at uh, TechEd Australia. I gather you're also involved with the the uh, opening keynote for uh, TechEd New Zealand, but I wasn't there at the time for that one. Um, but uh, and then I got a good chance to have a bit of a chat to you in the uh, on on the way back from uh, a function that evening. So and I thought it was sort of interesting to give people a perspective on sort of future directions in the industry and so on. And so maybe if we could just start, if you could just describe what your role is and probably a bit of your background so that people have a feel where you've come from. Okay, let me first stand corrected. Um, well, I didn't have in New Zealand the keynote. In New Zealand, I just had a breakout, but yes, it was the same topic. And probably starting from that perspective first, I can describe what I do and where I do then. But it's very interesting how the whole session, the whole talk, which is titled The Future of IT, or in a long form, it's called How IT Will Change in Next Decade and Why You Should Care. Um, I made that kind of a discussion originally for trusted advisors, uh, for mm-hmm. the type of people whom we have in Microsoft who we actually uh, we sell those people for humongous amount of money to large enterprises. So they can get someone on a side, their CIO, CTO, the whole CXO uh, class of people, get someone from Microsoft who will help them shape their IT. And those people need to understand those long-term big trends which are coming. They are not so much there in the enterprises to help them to deploy Vista, to fine-tune SQL Server, and to make sure that Exchange is properly configured. They actually are there to help people to think how far, as far ahead as possible and say maybe some decisions are not right at this moment and maybe some other decisions should be made instead. So this is how the talk was born, trying to teach people how to look into trends and not cyclical trends, and, but to look into the trends into the future which are obviously 
at first unstoppable trend, so something that is coming almost as sure as a big tsunami wave, you could call yeah. it. But on the other side, are the trends which are for sure to change either IT or our industry overall or actually the whole society. So coming now to the, to the question, where am I coming from and why am I doing all of those things? I'm sitting in a very interesting team in Microsoft Redmond, which is kind of a halfway between customers and our product teams. And what we are trying to do from architectural level perspective, so we are not so much code grinders or trying to mm. do prototypes, proof of concepts or things like that. We are trying to see, anticipate in the future, what will be the major architectural trends, what will be major trends in the whole IT scheme, how IT will support society, economy, industry, and what are we missing, what do we need to add, what do we need to build? So, for example, we are working on green IT initiative, we are working on a social networking software in the enterprise and how we fix that, on the new models of if we go from on-premise to off-premise, many people call that the cloud type of computing yeah. and so on and so on. What I, what I thought was interesting is that uh, in the lock note you used IBM as an example and uh, given the fact you had a, a background with IBM as well, that made it sort of particularly telling. So it might be worth sharing that. Yeah, and again, this is probably one of those leftovers, which I, you know, when you sit in front of the trusted advisors who are, at least in Microsoft, people with extremely big egos, you need to kind of uh, uh, create a rapport rather quickly with them. And for me, becoming a, actually, you know, I wanted to explain to people, why am I so paranoid about the future? Why am I looking into the kind of uh, all those short, mid and long term trends and try to anticipate it? And my explanation is that when I was in IBM, I saw how IBM actually went from an absolute hero in IT industry to the state where it is today. Today, IBM is still a formidable vendor, but everyone, even IBMers, agree that the glory days where there was nothing but IBM are far gone now. Yeah, I mean, that's right. There were days where it was the industry. Correct. IBM, for 30 years, defined the industry, defined the actual whole equipment. And if you're looking to the whole stack of things, I don't know how far back you go, but SMA protocol was completely defined on mainframe, how it works, APPN, APTS, all the LU sessions and everything, how it operated. That was pure IBM think tank behind. And yet... It is very marginal, if not completely irrelevant today, is it? Mm, indeed. Yes, I, I must admit, I, I do, do have, uh, I have to admit to having a little bit of a background in 370 assembler and, and thing, things like that. So. Well, this is already a good question. You see, if you would not change and you would stay an assembler programmer, what would you do today? Yeah. And this is already where you can see one of the obvious trends in development is that we are moving much quicker than many people actually see. We are moving through various stages and levels of programming. And let's say the, any managed language developer today, would that be a C-sharp or Java or whatever, any that type of a higher level language developer today will be in 10 years equally desirable as it is 
today assembler level developer or maybe Fortran, which means, yeah, it probably will be a niche market, but definitely this will not be a mainstream type of a coding, will it? Yeah. Yeah, in fact, one of the things I often say to, I uh, often talk to uh, finishing university classes and things a little bit, and, and I, I do try and point out to them the constant learning in the industry and say, look, I, I, I see it as that you have to be prepared, for me, I think, that probably 90% of what you know today is almost useless in about four or five years' time. Um, I, I often think that 10 or 20% that you get to keep is what keeps you out of trouble, but <laughs> but <laughs> I think the specifics disappear quite quickly. Correct. So when I'm talking to academia world, and usually I get some PhD class professor or someone like that, I always start to poke and say, when did you do your PhD? And the answer would be, I don't know, six, seven years ago. I go, mm. that tells me that only you used to know something. Yes. Because whatever the PhD thesis were from, this is guaranteed in IT industry, nearly irrelevant today. Mm. And the half time of knowledge, which means how how long does your current knowledge take you? This is shorter, shorter and shorter very much. So unless you do have that perpetual education cycle, which probably universities are a great place where you learn how to learn. Yeah. And this is, I would say, one of the most important things which students should take out. It is not the knowledge itself. Universities simply cannot prepare for IT industry, the proper class of people. They are not making artisans which exit universities. They should prepare people who are then enter IT industry and are ready to learn their current on-the-job skill. Because face it, five years from now, the top 10 jobs, probably they don't even exist today. They don't exist in the industry today. And if they don't exist in the industry, how do you make curriculum in the university for something what we don't even know what it will be. Yeah. No, absolutely. And the the thing I absolutely value from the uh, I must have been I spent a lot of time at universities. The the thing that I loved about it was actually the uh in the research phases was more the sort of collaborative nature and the curiosity and the uh, things like that rather than the specifics. Correct. You have those two different approaches in academia world and I would say with a pace and speed of change, especially in the IT industry and biotech and so on, uh, academia world, the most it can give to students is, as I said, to teach them how people will learn in the rest of their life. Yeah, I think the the other thing that I found um, when I look at people coming out of courses, it also displays to me a degree of persistence and ability to complete tasks. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just trying to think a little bit, you know, as, as my, my um, tasks, task is to think into the future. Mm. University, is, it mostly focuses on various levels in Bloom taxonomy, how to transfer knowledge and build your analysis skills and synthesis skills and skills of, let's say, rational thinking. Do you really need the physical university at all? Mm. Do you really need to go and listen to the professor? Do you really need to physically go and do the exam? 
And personally, and again, that all goes to the conferences if you go out, out from the university later. Do you really need to go to the physical classes to learn something? Do you have to go to the TechEd physically and learn something? You already can see that huge influx of tele-learning and uh, a correspondence uh, university courses and so on and so on. So here is the big question. What will happen to universities in 10 to 15 to 20 years? Mm -hmm. Will they still be the same type of institutions, brick and mortar, and having campuses of young people doing pranks and getting drunk and doing all the typical teenager things? <laughs> or will they turn into some humongous e-learning uh, data centers. Yeah. Look, I, I think a lot have already. I must admit, one of the things, uh, as I was doing study, I spent a lot of time doing external study, and uh, it was simply that I was doing it while I was working as well. And so it's a case of it was the only thing that fitted into the lifestyle. Right. Um, very much the debate I'm now pushing you in is the debate which is revolving also around the current stage of the web and the current stage how the whole internet evolved and many people call it web to zero and social web and so on. You see the main reason from my perspective why people actually want to physically come either to university or to the conference or physically be together, maybe not all the time, but why do people want to come and talk to each other? and touch each other and smell each other. Actually, all of those things come hand in hand together, right? Yeah. Uh, I would personally say there are three major reasons. The first one definitely is people like to congregate together. Yes. The second one is people like to be recognized. So it is the proper recognition in the society. And the third one is people like to contribute. Yeah. And so if you are putting congregation, recognition, and contribution, I didn't talk about learning. I didn't talk about gathering knowledge. I didn't talk about harvesting, did I? And this is almost like the first generation of Internet where everything was about finding stuff, harvesting out from the web, finding the best information, making Internet, uh, actually building encyclopedia out from the Internet. We are not there anymore. Actually, Internet is becoming much more and more social interaction tool. And if it is that, that means that probably university and all of the typical social interactions we can see in our life can be at least augmented, if not completely replaced with the digital technologies. Yeah. Yeah, I must admit one of the, the things that I – it's probably a dynamic and maybe as we get better video things happening, it'll be better again. But one of the things I find is that where people only initially have uh, particularly things like email interactions and things like that, I find they're not prepared to give each other the benefit of the doubt or things like that, where once they've actually met the person, they seem to have a, a different – uh, degree of willingness to, to sort of bend or things. Oh, yes, of course. And it all goes down to the typical communication theory, right, that we have a five communications channels as people, 
words and the semantics is just one channel. The voice, how I'm talking to you, is another channel. Then all my facial gestures are the third channel. My posture of the body would be the fourth channel. And also my movement and my stance towards you, against you, is the fifth channel. So going back to the digital augmentation of reality, if you would get more than just my sound of voice and words, what you are getting right now, definitely you would feel much more real close and kind of a, have, you would have much more immersed um, environment. And that's why, for example, just adding the webcam gives you at least one more channel. Because if you see a talking head, it is already, you, you feel better. You feel like you are closer to a person. Mm. Yeah, that's good. So listen, in terms of the, the big picture, I mean, if we say, well, what do you think are the unstoppable? Oh, actually, the thing I was going to ask you about, that's right, going back, is why we were on the why do you think IBM isn't still at the center of the industry? Oh, there are a million of reasons for that mm. and a million of opinions. My personal opinion definitely is that IBM always wanted to protect what they found the most sacred, and that was the mainframe, right? Yeah. Uh, what I'm trying to tell other people is that uh, enterprises and businesses and all corporations need to learn to actually render their own top cash cow products obsolete, which means if you have something what is the best and number one on the market, who would be the best person to render that product obsolete and replace it with something else? Yeah, and it should be you. You, yeah. you don't want your competition to do that. You want to be you. And now either you replace it with something either better, and this is how you call the upgrade or next generation or so on, or you completely change the paradigm. But it always has to be, it has to be you. Or you will die. Or at least, you know, go into the second, third, and God knows which place. Yeah, because the point you made in the lock note, you said that it wasn't for a lack of clever people, it wasn't for a lack of great technology, any any of those things, because they had those things. Of course. they. I mean, IBM is a great company, still is a great company, but they lost so many millions in so few years that it, it is actually incredible. And very much what I, what I want to teach people is that IBM was the victim of their own success in a sense because they made the technology which alters reality. Right? The technology has the power to alter reality. We do behave differently with technology than without. Look in Australia. If you went to Outback without any communication tools and no planes and no technology. I'm not talking just digital technology, but any technology. Yeah. Going to Outback was certain death. Oh, yeah, you'd, you'd no. die. You'd die. In yes, fact, you, one, one yeah, of the things I, I find quite funny, in fact, we were, we were at a, a trivia evening last night discussing just this. Um, in Bill Bryson's book he uh, called Down Under, he has some amazing stories in there. But one of the things he notes that's quite ironic about the country is that almost all of the things that we have around the place are named after explorers who died. Um, there weren't actually really probably very good explorers. <laughs> this is one of the best books that Bill Bryson actually wrote, and I really like that chapter when he turns on the Australian radio 
there is a long <laughs> silence and you hear some black, some click, and some commentator goes, that was a good inning or outing <laughs> or whatever. And actually, it goes on for, you know, minutes after minute after minute, actually hour after hour. And, it was, and as you, we both know, it was a cricket game, right? Yeah. But he, he is describing it in such a hilarious perspective. Because, yeah, let's face it, in cricket game, nothing much happens. <laughs> nothing right? much happens. <laughs> now, in fact, I always sort of see cricket as a, um, a game that if I'm ever watching that, I have to be doing something else. So, I mean, I can be sitting at the computer, you have have some cricket on happening in the background or something, and you know they're going to re- replay anything that's interesting about five times anyway. So, so you you Correct. hear some noise, yeah. you look up, you see what happened. But yeah, no, it's not something I sit there and <laughs> just watch, <laughs> and unless it's a the the, uh, the the current little sort of twenty twenty series or something that are the really really fast games. But uh, yeah, no, no, no. You know, in fact, they always describe the funny thing with cricket. It's got to be the only game that you could play a game for five. Five days, all day, every day, and at the end of it, more than half the time, it's a draw. <laughs> Correct. And, and every day you have to drink tea. <laughs> yeah. the, the idea that you could not get a result after five days is just beyond comprehension. Right. Yeah, so. <laughs> but let me, let me go back to, you know, yes. I said the technology alters reality, and many people just don't see that. And this is something what I also I, I am quite shocked by our own population, and probably it must be the age thing. I would say especially Generation X, which is kind of a somewhere, you know, it is between our parents, which are baby boomers, but still not young enough to be that kind of a digital native type yeah. of a generation. And Generation X simply, yes, we, we use the technologies, but we use them almost in a way like probably your grandmother would use, you know, electricity which means that rather than never, and she would, you know, somehow we are half afraid of it. Somehow we yeah. really just don't know how to use it. And Many the, people I think the point just, you made in, especially, yeah. the point you made in the lock note is that we have a, a, a thing in our head about how we used to do it prior to doing it this way. Correct. We, we know how it was before it, and then you get a new tool, and because... Tools are upgraded, but we are not upgraded. We need to upgrade ourselves. We need to force ourselves to go through the upgrade mode. And now suddenly we have all those communication tools, even if you're looking to all those new stuff coming out, let's say Twitter, and then you have Facebook, and then you have blogging and wikis, and then you go through. And suddenly I, you know, I ask always people, do you know when to use? Facebook versus Twitter versus blog versus wiki versus email versus voicemail versus text message versus everything else that is out there. And people just look at me and go, gosh, you are right. There is so many choices that we just don't really think which choice is right when. And it's okay not to think. What is not okay is that our, us as an older generation, we usually make the wrong selection. And I even saw that, for example, I saw in a company where uh, someone is using the wrong media for, to put something that should go on a distribution list and it goes on a wiki. And then a wiki turns actually into the forum. You can imagine yep. what kind of a disaster that could be. Yep. Yep. What is interesting to me is that the new generation, which is just now entering the workforce, the generation Y, as I call it, or digital natives, they actually, they are... They don't. They are not accepting our primitive 
rules which we build in businesses, we built in enterprises and rules which we think are pretty neat and smart and they just don't accept them and they don't want to live according to them. Yeah. If someone enters a typical Australian corporation today, and let's say it's freshmen out from some good advanced progressive college in Australia, you can imagine the shock of that young person when they would get some you know, regulated, standardized desktop of that corporation, which is probably at least a year old, which means it's mm. some shaggy old machine. Yep. Uh, and it will have, if they're really happy, it will have maybe 500 gigs disk. Mm. You know how much one terabyte costs today? Yeah. I don't think it's 200 Australian dollars. And at home, my media center has two terabytes of capacity. Yeah. Now tell me, which corporation gives you a one terabyte machine, which almost every teenager has at home? Yeah. And if I continue, then you get some, you know, some sloppy mailbox, which if you are a really good corporation, it maybe will have 100 megs of capacity, but usually you get 50 or even two. I saw corporations... Some of them are two. 20, <laughs> yeah, 20 megs of capacity. You can't put one single video file in that. Mm. And then, of course, then you get all the policies and regulations. No, you are not allowed to get to put videos in there or attachments in there. And mail is not for this and mail is not for that. And on top of that, to make the things really miserable then you put all the group policies and all of the restrictions. And if you want to access mailbox from home, you need to bring up the VPN channel with some special dongles and devices and one-time passwords. You know what? That new generation will look into this and will go, this is moronic. I don't want all of this. At first, you are giving me a new identity, a new email address, which is actually treated as an identity in this age. And that new identity, you think that I will return back when I leave the company? I don't want that. You are giving me a small, slow, hard-to-access mailbox. I don't want that either. I will stay with my, you know, Hotmail, Gmail, Yahoo Mail. Please, don't, don't give me trash. Just let me work. And simply, the, the, uh, all the perspective about technologies is becoming... You know, it, it is becoming equally sexy to talk about technology as it is to talk about washing machines. Nobody yeah. cares really what type of technology it is underneath it. You just want a mailbox. You want that it sends, receives, and displays. You don't care what kind of a data storage is it behind and is it running the managed code or can you do the, that, this or that type of a Johnson, you know, will it have a star schema or will it have the snowflake in it? You just want to store data. You want to label it smartly, and you want to access it fast, and that's all. Where will the data be stored? Who cares? Mm. As long as it doesn't disappear. <laughs> it, well, exactly. So it's not so much. I don't. I don't think that this is the number one issue: the, the no. reliance on uh, the reliability of the data. Because especially moving towards the cloud computing, you know that we get five, six, ten instances of same data, and it immediately goes onto, onto the CDN, onto the content delivery network, which means you store, you probably already had chats about SSDS on this talk, which is a sequence. No, but in fact, I was thinking much. in the second part of this talk, we might talk specifically about that a little bit, so oh, just okay. set, set, so, the, set the tone for it, yeah. 
Sure. SSDS is Microsoft's uh, flavor of big database in a cloud, big storage in a cloud. But the whole point is that you never yeah, have SSDS, a yeah, for, for listeners, yeah, just SSDS, so it's SQL Server Data Services. Correct. Yeah. And uh, the whole idea is that once you decide that some data will be stored out there, and literally you don't know where. I'm not talking about hosting anymore. I'm not talking about a co-location where, you know, if you want to, we can take you to the rack number 27, to the shelf number 6, and here it is, your server. If you're looking into that kind of a battery type of a new data center regime, how it works, nobody can point where your stuff exactly is. And there are several reasons for that. The first one definitely is accessibility. You want to spread the data far around and apart because probably you are storing in a cloud something what people from around the planet will want to access. But even more important, if you're looking to the new class of the data centers, they actually have every single piece of hardware is virtualized. So even the SQL Server itself is a virtual instance, and we can teleport it from one side of the data center to another side just because, for example, one side of the data center was too hot, and we want to lower our bill of electricity for cooling. So that's why we teleport the whole instance across the container or across the data center. Yes, I said container. Mm. So for people who are not aware yet, uh, all big data centers, no, well, most of big data centers in U.S. are not buying servers anymore either piece by piece or rack by rack. We buy them container by container. So usually a container will cost around, I would say around 5 million U.S. It has between 1 and 2,000 servers, depending how much storage you want in there. And if you get it with the right level of SLA, service level agreement, usually you will not even get the access to the inside of the container. All the research statistics showed that humans trying to fix hardware will more frequently ruin other hardware around, which means you will turn off the wrong server, you will pull out the wrong cable or whatever. So generally, technicians come and enter containers when containers go below 95% of their capacity. Now think about it. If you have 1,000 servers in there, 95, uh, so 5% of capacity of 1,000 servers is 50 machines. So you don't enter your server room until 50 machines are dead. That's pretty interesting concept isn't it mm. but and so and the container itself would have very few connections of any type oh yeah of course so container really needs to rely only on three major kind of uh, life supplies number one is power of course power yeah. is the number one juice of any data center then you have cooling and most of the containers are cooled through the liquid cooling so mm -hmm. it's not really water it is a liquid cooling however it is done in a data center yeah. and the third one is of course connectivity so you yeah, need to get that big yeah. exactly big mesh connection to the network and that's it you get three big humongous pipes entering the container and it's almost like a matrix going into one of those things you remember in matrix when neo wakes up and he mm -hmm. looks all of those batteries of 
people who are actually giving power and dream, yeah. I got very similar feeling. Mm-hmm. Looking at the data centers. Yes, looking into those data centers of that kind of a new class of data centers. So, for example, the the one which we just finished building in Microsoft and is now in production is in Chicago. Uh, actually, the decision to build it in Chicago is interesting because, as I said, power is number one resource of any data center. If you're looking 10 years back, a data center always selected hardware which goes in mostly based on how advanced type of CPU and memory you can get for for your bugs. So how much bang for the buck? Mm. Now it's all about power. In Microsoft, if there is a new CPU which burns half the power than current generation, we will probably ship back all of the service from last six months and replace them with that new power-saving model or architecture or CPU. Yeah. Yeah, it's certainly interesting, the whole concept of uh, when you're talking about each of these applications needs to be able to move around between servers dynamically, and you were suggesting part of the reason you might do that is just to even out the temperature in different parts of the data center. Yes, you, every data center needs to control the heat map. The core issue of our technology of today is that you don't cool it, it melts. It's, it's simple as that. Mm. CPUs are running very much, if you remove the typical noisy fan which runs on top of every CPU today, that CPU goes to the same temperature as the surface of the sun within <laughs> yeah. less than a couple of seconds. <laughs> and that it, it melts itself. So mm-hmm. you have to cool it down, and probably approximately two-thirds of power of any data center will go into cooling energy, and only one-third goes into running uh, bits and bytes around. Mm-hmm. And you're now also the saying question, the positioning yes. of them was then a big issue. Positioning of, a, for example, containers in Chicago are positioned like in a fish bones. Uh, the whole data center is uh, very much first floor only, so it, it looks like the one humongous building on pylons, on pillars, and there is mm-hmm. nothing kind of, an, it's an empty space below. Containers are brought on trucks in a fish bone type of, a, of pattern, lifted and, and attached to the data center from underneath. So, yeah, the whole design is very, very much, you know, futuristic, I would say. But, hey, mm. we have it today. And then you sit down and you go, okay, I'm sitting actually on top of 300,000 servers. Why do we need all of that power? And this is not the only data center. And Microsoft is not the only data center provider. And, you know, suddenly you start to realize that whole IT as a service, which is just emerging now, how tremendous shift in the industry this will be. When instead of buying an application, you get it as a service. Instead of buying a piece of code, you get it as a service. Instead of today, we are procuring the IT in a very same manner as we are, we are buying cars. You know, you go to the shop and you say, I want Holden, I want it's red, I want that it has, you know, two liter uh, 6V engine and all of the typical petrol head questions pop into your yeah. mind. 
once you start buying car as a service, I'm not talking about the new financial models. I'm not talking about leasing the car. I'm talking about taxi. Taxi is car as a service, right? Hmm. So what is the criteria for a taxi? You don't care when you go to the taxi if it, it is yellow, blue, or red. Actually, you don't even have a choice, do you? <laughs> you don't even have a choice. Is it Toyota, Ford, or Holden? Because and most of the people, they don't care. What you really care is, I mean, a couple of simple things. And now in Sydney, the fact that the driver can speak English is a factor. <laughs> yes. Indeed. Right? And that also, they have any that idea where they're going, yeah. You have two types of taxis in Sydney, the one where driver is protected in a plastic shell or the one where you are photographed five times a minute, <laughs> right? And this is probably, you know, do you prefer to be photographed or do you prefer to drive next to the Robocop? <laughs> and, you know, is a taxi clean or not? I mean, going more seriously, you are not asking yourself what kind of a tires does the taxi have. You are not even asking yourself, does it have a good mileage or not? These are not questions for you. These are questions for the driver or owner of the taxi. You just want that it will take you to the right destination, it will be safe, and it will be decently fast. And that you'd get some service which, you know, that you don't have the bad experience with it. So you get all of those other soft factors in it. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you feel in it? You are not really looking into the taxi that it has a leather seat. But you are still thinking, did I feel good or not in this cab? Will I call this cab company again or not? Yeah. If you translate that to IT, then suddenly all of those big questions we are asking ourselves today in IT, you know, will we do it on-premise or off-premise? Will we virtualize and with which technology? How will we mass provision service? And we, you know, you bring 500 servers in and how will you mass provision the operating system on this? All of this very much becomes irrelevant from a perspective of IT as a service. Will you do it SaaS, like software as a service, or, you know, is it on-premise, off-premise? These are not services. These are things which are relevant to IT equivalent of petrol heads, which is us, actually. And once you start moving this whole thing into that massive industrialization, and this is where we are going, if you're looking how many devices which are networked, we add week after week or month after month. We are just at the beginning of the flashpoint where, you know, we have to move into the same industrialization concepts like we did with the car industry. Cars used to be built by hand, one after one after one. How many factories which build hand-built cars do you know besides, besides Rolls-Royce? Mm. Not many, right? Yeah. So, People who used to build cars, then they went away, and instead of them came people who built robots who built cars. Yeah. So In fact, I, I, saw, I saw a very interesting interview um, many years ago where it was an interview with the Mazda um, factory manager uh, in Hiroshima. And... He he was saying that people said to him when the robots came in that, oh, it must have made your life suddenly so simple. And he was saying when they arrived, his his life was a complete nightmare. And 
And he said the thing that he found is that if you had a human welder or something, any little variation in in the part supply or whatever, the human would just allow for it. He said where he had uh, the robots involved, of course, things just didn't work anymore. And so he said what he ended up, the biggest challenge for them was actually going right up through their entire supply chain um, and completely changing the tolerances on all of the things that came into the factory. He said, but by the same token, he now has no doubt that the cars he's producing are dramatically better cars than the, the cars he was producing before. And, oh, by the way, even at the time, they were had one rollout every 30 seconds. Correct. Fully agree. That's true. So looking into, you know, what is that major difference between automation, what robots can do, and so robots have a completely different advantage and completely different, I would say, type of skills compared to what we can do as humans, and we should not mix one with another, if you ask me. Yeah. So what are the other unstoppable trends that you see at the moment? Well, one definitely you already heard, which is industrialization combined with uh, virtualization, and all of that kind of, I would say, obviously leads us to some type of a global class computing. Not many organizations will be able to build and maintain their own global class computing. So that kind of also drives us to the kind of a decline of on-premise IT departments, which means if you're looking into the server room in a typical small-medium business today, you know what? I read that the other day on some blog, have a good look around because this room will not be around for long. It it will go away because things in the cloud will do the same, just much cheaper, much more reliable, with much less human effort and intervention. So let me start first with a little bit of a theory, and most of us already heard about the Maslow Pyramid of Needs, and I think we learned about it in high school, I guess, third year or something like that. So at the bottom, you have a physiological needs, and Internet catered for that ages ago, right? Because buying food and buying everything, whatever your heart desires, and having it delivered within a couple of days, either you, you, know, you bought it secondhand or straight from the supplier, huge amount of buying habits are moving to Internet today. And I don't think that, that new generation still can even think how they would satisfy their physiological buying needs without having either research or ask for opinion or whatever over the internet. You know, just blindly, let's sit into the car, go to the closest shop and buy whatever is there. This is probably unthinkable. It is why you are wasting time, money, you will get bad stuff and so on. The, yeah, there's certainly no way I'd do that nowadays. I mean, I, I, I'm imagining every single thing I purchase. I mean, the first thing I go looking for are ideas on various ones and then reviews and comments, and it doesn't matter now what I'm purchasing. You can find it. Ah, you, you, you are already touching a very interesting slant because you said reviews and comments. Mm. How comes that you don't trust the advertisement that this is <laughs> the best so far? <laughs> You see, advertisement, which used to be the persuasion channel of the past, is completely 
stepping aside to something what that kind of a social, new social shifting paradigm brought in. Because people can communicate on a such massive, large scale to each other, suddenly you expect to get the true voice of the customer, not the one which is faked and recorded by some actor, you know, where a woman says, oh, I really like this cellulite cream. It really took my cellulite away. Yeah. Suddenly you look that on a television and you go, yeah, right. Let me research about that on the Internet. Right? That's probably the first reaction. So you see a whole bunch of the industries are going through a tremendous tectonic shift just because of the digital augmentation of our real life. You can't go anymore to a consumer and say, buy this, it is good, trust me, I'm telling you it's good. Very, very few consumers of new age will buy that. Very few people will say, okay, this is assertion strong enough for me, I believe it. Yeah. They, expect, they expect to get some contribution from the rest of society through the digital media. So we are already kind of rushing up the pyramid because we are already talking about a steam level, but everything in between is also catered by digital phenomena. There we are yeah. looking through you safety, know, through... One of the things that I most go looking for, ironically, when I buy products, I find so many corporations have uh, support forums and things like that, and they tend to not put the right amount of uh, effort into those forums, yet that's the very first place I go looking when I'm thinking about buying their products is to have a look at the discussions surrounding their support forums. Correct. So, again, you're, this is that some organizations, some, some companies are able to adapt, some are not. And this comes all back to that, that, if you were really successful in the past, this is no indication that as the reality changes, that you will be still successful in that future paradigm. Mm. And with new technologies, with new approach, the business rules are changing. And if you don't change as well, you probably are not. If you are set to succeed in a previous type of the environment, the, that, that setting will for sure will not help you once the paradigm shifts. Yeah, one of the ones that intrigued me, uh, one of the disk drive manufacturers, for example, a little while ago, I was wondering about some of their drives. They had wonderful examples on the website. They had all the technical details. They had everything. Yet on their support forums, every second post said things like, are you people still in business? <laughs> Not really good, huh? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, but looking looking much more short term, you probably already know in Australia all the disaster happening around the spore game from Electronic Arts, where although the game is fantastic and brilliant, because someone decided that piracy is so bad that they will protect the game with such a strong and draconian DRM, if you go to the Amazon.com, this game is like 5,000 people rated it with a single star or no star or whatever the lowest yeah. rating is on Amazon because they don't like the DRM part of the game. Mm -hmm. And what happens to, to the rating of the game on Amazon? Anyone who is uneducated will simply not see it as a top-rated game, and they will not buy it. So it hurts. If you, 
and, and this is this whole new paradigm of the leadership, if you're looking. If you start pressing your employee and playing games with employees, they will go and blog about it. And what does that do to the image of your corporation? What does that do to image of yourself personally? Because huge, many amounts, many people will actually blog about a manager who did X. And that manager, it was in previous, kind of in previous type of the corporate world, it was okay to have bad managers who kind of jumped around either between different sectors, different parts of the organization, or even between different companies. And you don't change the habit, you're still a bad manager. And actually, being a bad manager and jumping around makes your portfolio longer and juicier. So oddly enough, you're jumping around because you're bad, but portfolio looks like you are great. Mm. That, that, can't, that will not work in the future anymore because you will get a trail out on the Internet which you can't erase what you did, what you do, how you are and who you are. Very much all of your merits are on exposure on the Internet. So one of my colleagues the other day, we had that discussion, said, this is not a democracy anymore. This is turning into the meritocracy. Meritocracy, yes. Exactly. Where and nothing ever your disappears. Mm. Exactly, your merits define you. Suddenly, and then you start to ask yourself, who is me? Is me that digital persona, which I use when I'm in a digital kind of a world? Or is it me, really me physically? And obviously, this is not really one and the same. I don't know if you're an avid gamer or not, or if you go no. to those different various websites, but even if you are not playing games, I can tell you, for example, my own experience. Um, I'm going to, and you are probably going to various different websites as well, and I behave differently on a Facebook. Facebook for me is almost like my advertisement. I will have minimum activity there. I will be very conservative, reserved, and so on. On the other side, I also love cooking, and I own one of really bizarre type of grills, which is called the Big Green Egg. And that big green egg has a very, very active community out there. And I have another kind of a persona which I use in that community. And I am, I act differently. I behave differently. I'm much more open, upfront. I throw recipes out. I tell other people how crappy their recipes and their grills are and so on. Mm. If I'm going to, let's say, some analyst um, website and I'm using another account there, I'm someone else again, because I'm much more in my professional architectural role there. And I can't be free. I really need to think what I put there, and so on and so on. So what I'm trying to say is that the moment when you start touching other people digitally, you are not one person anymore. Think about it. You are actually many people. You are many personas at the same time. So, you know, that's why I asked you if you are playing games, because if you want to see the, what the business leadership will look in the future, you should probably look into what is really happening in online games today, because mm. most of those highly played, really complex online games, the typical one is the World of Warcraft. Yeah. The world, to be successful in World of Warcraft, you have to have all the skills 
which matter in real life too. Mm. So if you get a CV, and I, I got that the other day where someone is telling that, you know, he is referencing his leadership. And he says, you know what, I'm level 65 skilled guild master in World of, in World of Warcraft. Yeah. And it may sound completely bizarre, but you know how long it takes to become level 65? <laughs> yeah, I can well imagine. <laughs> you know how much trust you need to have from other people to be a guild master and lead a couple of other real players to battle with monsters and actually lead the battle in a form that you are winning and not dying? Mm. It it shows true tenacity. It shows true leadership. It shows almost all of the aspects which you know you are taught on a typical MBA study. Yeah. So is it real? Is it fake? Suddenly, you know, all of those the hard line between real life and digital life is that membrane is starting to get thinner and thinner. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. One of the examples you used also, you were talking about things like a, a mayor of a city as to who might be the appropriate person for that. Well, yes, if you combine everything what we are discussing now and you start to, and this is what I really find most stimulating, that you get one trend and combine with another one, one prediction and trying to meld it with another one. So if we are really going into that meritocratic world where only merits count, and at the same time you get that blend between real and digital, kind of a, you know, more and more um, immersive and it's less and less relevant what is real and what is digital, how improbable or how probable it is that you would have election for some major city, for example, I don't know, Melbourne or Sydney, mm. in, 10, in 10 years, and all the candidates would roll in and everyone would have their best program and everyone would go and have their own kind of a political campaign and so on and so on, and the one which would float up on top and would, got, would get most votes and people would say, that one is really passionate about the city. He has bright ideas. He has great idea how to manage the city budget, how to squeeze most out of it, how to make the best out of the city. And you would realize at the end that that would be like 18-year-old Indian from Hyderabad who plays huge amount of SimCity simulations, knows everything how to control budgets through, he learned that through games. He is able to control in the gaming world way more, com way more complex cities than a simple Melbourne or a simple Sydney. And actually he has a true passion to make a real city succeed. Would you make him a mayor? Mm. 
That's right, and chances are he'd do a much better job than some political hack locally. (laughs) Correct, and don't evade the answer. I'm asking you, Greg, would you make him a mayor? I I would. (laughs) I, I look at jobs like mayors and things like that, and I see it as a specific role that's a management role and uh, I, uh you know i i can well imagine a world where i'd be perfectly happy with that to be let out and it could be anybody anywhere who did it and they'd simply be assessed on their achievements right so lots of people tell me that this is very scary what i'm talking about and this is on the edge of what matrix as a movie is about and so on So one of the ideas I was contemplating on the other day is how to actually make revival of the email, because email as it is today is not serving the right function anymore, just because if I want to inform you about something, why do I need to send you the blob of information over the wire, over some arcane SMTP protocol? If you're looking how young people are using email, they're actually um, Facebook uh, they're writing on each other Facebook walls or they're Twittering yeah. to each other. So I saw that whole paradigm shift in one, one thinking where someone is talking that we need to start building something like digital bots, like me.bots, and that I.bot will talk to you.bot. So I have plenty of my devices which all of the, the only function of my devices, it can be a PC, it can be my car, it can be my phone, it can be whatever else, my shoes, my iPhone, my, sorry, iPods, the MP3 player, or whatever else we will use in the future. The sole purpose of those devices is to give you the good immersive connection to your MyBot, MyDotBot. So the bot will handle everything for you in the cloud. It will be digital you in the cloud. And it will say, oh, the digital part of Micha would like to do some discussion with the digital part of Greg. And the bots will do the signaling with each other and will decide, ah, sorry, Greg is not available right now. The bot will say to my bots, so huge amount of decision and huge amount of information exchange, information flood, which we are experiencing today, you can actually filter out and do the basic decision completely without interfering your physical presence. Mm. You can go even imagine that you would have a girlfriend and you go to her, you know, digital persona and say, based on everything how she feels lately, if I would ask her to marry me today, would she say yes or no? And the bot would say, well, based on all the analysis and all the BI information I have, she would say no. Mm. Just, if, can you imagine, we have all the bits available today. Just think <laughs> about it. If you create the right, the right information pool for you where everything you do would be written on a type of a, your personal wall. It would be like your personal feed. You know, you are typing on a computer. You are working on a document. You are writing email. You are doing a phone call. You are doing this. You are doing that. And uh, also, there, you could start seeing all the patterns emerging. And probably for your audience, this becomes particularly interesting because if you start collecting the behavioral stream of data, what we do with digital technologies today, 
there is more than enough of data to say, we know how many minutes and which time of the day you spend on the phone with which person. Your bot mm-hmm. can find it out. Your bot can find out how many emails you write to whom at which time of the day. Where do the mails go to? How fast are they replied to? So your bot can tell you once you start typing email to your manager at 2 a.m. on Friday, your bot can inform you and say, don't bother, Greg, because according to the pattern, your manager never responds earlier than Tuesday morning. (laughs) Have a weekend for yourself. Mm. Sounds scary? (laughs) I can imagine. So... In terms of the people listening there, look, most most would be uh, DBA and developer folk. What do you think the biggest impacts are for them? Uh, so, yeah, these are two completely different class of, of mm. uh, jobs, right? So let me yep. start first with developers because I think that developers at the moment are in front of the couple of really big decisions. Because if you're looking for the... You know, we always want to do things cheaper, faster, and of better quality, right? Mm-hmm. And from the manual, manual labor perspective, we are, for developers, we are reaching its limits. Cost perspective, you know, how do you lower the cost? Well, you outsource to a cheaper country, right? But even the cheap application development labor is limited, especially, you know, you have a socioeconomic factors, uh, at a certain point in time, even India and China will not be poor anymore and will say, no, thank you, we don't do that work anymore. Maybe, mm. you know, where do you go then? If you're looking from the speed perspective, it, human nature has the limit on speed of coding. So you can enter codes, you know, no faster than you can type. And we are very bad multitaskers as people. And especially from quality perspective, right? So, uh, you know, um, Simply process platforms, technologies, all of that is defined in advance if you're looking how we work. You know, the workforce, the governance, all of that is written in some contracts or verbally agreed and then rarely met. Mm. So on the other side, again, it is about cost, speed, and quality. If you're looking what machines can do for us, right, what can be cheaper than, you know, software machines? which will do industrialized production of software based on some simple models coming out from what we call today business analyst. You feed the business model or process model or UI model or data model into the machine, and the software machine gives you the finished code out. How about the speed, you know, unlimited multitasking? completely free from handling variables and so on, compared to people, we can't compete with machines you know, by speed. Machines' way of life is virtually limited, if you're looking from that perspective. And quality as well. It is you know, that you can define, measure, and improve everything in real time. We are talking about, of course, code. You can, you know, you can define everything of that in a real time. Imagine the machine where you say, well, I want .NET code now, and bang, you get it. And then you can say, oh, actually, I thought Java. And you get it like 10 seconds later, recompiled on a new platform mm. or recompiled with a new technology or, you know, with a new governance or whatever is required. So what will happen to developers of today? I don't know. 
that if someone asked 20 years ago what will happen to Fortran developers, probably no one even asked that question at that time. Yeah. Because Fortran developers were gods. Mm. Uh, about DBAs, DBAs are probably a little bit different breed because we are entering now the era where rich semantics and metadata about data is becoming so humongously important. Yes, it still will be important how exactly you lay out tables, how exactly you do relationships. It will still be important how you do referential integrity and all of that. But will that be the top priority of interest? It is almost like saying, yes, it is important to compile a code, but that is done very much almost automatically. And machines are so powerful and optimizers are so good today that even doing a manual layout, doing the manual schema for, you know, star schema or snowflake, that has a limited lifespan, especially in that type of a computing we are entering into. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, you know that we can't scale vertically much longer anymore until we discover quantum computing or whatever we need to yeah. find after. So you already see that chip manufacturers are moving away from vertical scaling into horizontal scaling. And you can buy the mm. CPUs from Intel today with a, you know, two cores, four cores, or even more. So it's not far away the day when you will enter the shop and buy, you know, 256-core machine. Now, here is the question. How do you code against 256 cores? which means that you need to be able to do massive parallel multi-processing programming with massive multi-threading. There is no language today where you can do that easily. Today, we craft every thread manually. There is no database that can use that today. So all of those things have to change. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, note even most of the Microsoft applications, so many of them have or spin up so many threads now. And and I look at a lot of them. I mean, things like Outlook. I think you know when it's doing nothing has sixty or seventy threads. And and you think, well, <laughs> okay, so that that's interesting. But you get to a point where that'll be a fraction of the number of cores on the machine. So so what? Exactly, and. I, it always, almost makes me laugh when I am listening or reading the comments where people go, what, what, why do you need Vista versus XP? What feature can you give me in the next office? What is not good enough? Right? Like that whole approach of IT is good enough. Mm-hmm. And it is very close, very similar when you had the industrialized revolution and you had a huge amount of conservatives going, you know, machines are bad. We don't need machines. Why would you need to have a machine to comb your cotton? Combing mm. cotton by hand is much finer, nicer, and more beautiful. And you know that at the beginning, the cotton combing machines were maybe a little bit rough and not doing the best job. But, hey, today, today no one is combing cotton by hand anymore. Mm. No one. So, you know, when you see the desire to stop the progress, 
And the only thing what you can do is you can maybe slow the progress a little bit, but much more important, you make ridiculous, you make ridicule out of yourself, I would say. Mm. Look, I think one of the other key aspects um, I'm keen to sort of uh, hear your thoughts on really relate to how much will move from in-house systems to cloud-based systems. Well, you have, as you probably know, two radically different schools of thought here. Uh, let me start first with the one which is not coming from Microsoft, which says everything will go away. Everything will go into the cloud, and all what you need is some stupid representation machine, which is called browser. And this is that extreme type of a software as a service model where everything is served through browser and consumed by browser and a couple of eyeballs staring into the browser. Mm. Well, I don't personally think that this will really work um, because we are coming to this. We already are in the information situation and overload era where you need to have with you various input devices and various output devices as well as something what understands your context. Mm. So let me be more practical. It sounds very theoretical. You need to have something with you what will know that right now you are on a phone call so you cannot get another phone call. You can't do that decisioning in the cloud. Something needs to say, okay, I am ac accepting emails for uh, right now for my user, but will not inform the user, or I will send back the, back the text message, or, uh, issue, uh, or, or uh, something needs to decide to say, oh, okay, user moved out from the house, and I know that whenever user goes out from the house, I need to put that out on a Twitter, or whatever the next service will be. Mm. What will be that intelligent, context-based module which will understand the context, the consequence, the, your current state of mind and everything? Personally, I don't think that you can do that in the cloud. We talked before about that digital bot, the, you know, the digital persona. But again, part of that needs to live with you, needs to be yeah. part of you to really connect your physical presence with your digital presence. Browser is not a good thing to do that. Mm -hmm. So what will move to the cloud? Heavy processing, heavy storage, heavy data, heavy business process, all of that goes up because we don't need the, the heavy distributed computing in the classical sense as we have today. We still need heavy CPU power but heavy CPU power mostly for the reasons like doing the really good voice recognition, doing mm. really good eyeballs tracking, doing really smart, sensible decisioning. You know, where are you at right now? What are you looking at? And so on. Having a devices which can talk to each other in a mesh around you. So the device which you used to talk to, today you call it a phone, can talk to the device which you are using to go around with. Today we call it a car. And then to talk to the device you use to store things into, and today you call it a notebook or whatever you use to write on. Mm. So all of, those, all of those devices or things need to talk to each other somehow and decide what stays locally, what goes in the cloud, what is, you know, 
what goes into the house server if you have one and for example your personal music collection mm. is it sensible to have your music collection up in a cloud or should you or let's not talk about music collection let's talk about um how about really spicy personal videos you made with your wife mm. would you put that to the cloud Unless you are a really weird person, probably you would prefer to store that somewhere rather local. Mm. So, you see, or it's not either or. I would presume. I wouldn't say or, I would say and. And now yeah. you're already opening the second, one of the largest issues of that next era. It is security and privacy. Mm. And both of them are hard to address, and for both of them, I don't have answers right now, but we at least know that we are in front of some big problems we need to face or probably we will need to do partially with uh, regulation, partially with legislation, and partially with new advanced technologies like encryption mm. and so on. If you ask me personally, 10 years from now, every single protocol on the mesh, whatever the Internet will be called, every single protocol exchange will be encrypted every single piece of data will be encrypted, every single exchange of information will be encrypted. So yeah. when you see data stored or flowing, will be encrypted. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we just simply have the CPU cycles available to do it, so I mean, it, it really doesn't matter. Um, and the, exactly. What, um, yeah, I'm sort of... One of the things I'm sort of just noticing already trends where I, I notice, uh, for example, I see so many uh, companies who traditionally years ago would have used something like Microsoft Exchange changing to using one of the uh, email providers uh, already sort of in sort of in the cloud. And the, the sort of thing that sort of intrigues me with that is, of course, the I'm seeing larger and larger companies all the time do, doing this sort of thing. And I, I see it as it's, it's a very simple equation for them. I mean, they say things like, you know, $50 per user per year. I can just pay this money. I can provision it in an hour or half an hour, I mean, compared to going and buying servers and putting things in locally and so on. And and it there just has to be a tide where there'll be significant classes of applications and things where nobody's going to be interested in wanting to provision it locally because it's not even just the 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 managing of it and all that. It's it's the fact that, you know, again, you can provision things instantaneously and the agility to to Put, get more resources and pay for more or back off and pay for less and so on. And uh, it, it, it's just not that agile when you have it within your own organization. So partially I agree. The only word which you said and I'm not agree in agreement with is you said nobody. Ah, yes. Always, always there will be a class of companies which will, because of either of a regulation or yep. very strange management or whatever reason, they will have that need. Yeah. I can give you, I can show you another parallel. About 150 years ago, I saw a couple of photos the other day from some big, uh, I think it was a law firm. And I saw in a corner of the law firm was a big safe for money. 
You know that big one which you yeah. see in all the Western movies. The old Western movies the, in the bank, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And they put the dynamite around, and yeah. it has the big dial in the middle. And you know, then mm. in, a, in, a, in a comedy movie, they put the, the the stethoscope on it and trying to open. Yeah. And I I spoke with a person who said, yeah, at that time every business who ever did anything with money, for example, a law office. People came in, they got services, they paid in cash all yeah. the time. Every single business stored huge quantities of money on premise, and they had to have a safe for and money. And they all they had, had safes, yeah. And had security around it, had a big sturdy man to watch for it. They had a very special lady or, you know, a clerk who had exactly the written evidence, what went in, what went out. It was a full, complete department to handle mm. money in the company. Well, today we have a full, complete department to handle IT. And instead of the, the money room, you have a server room. Mm. And in the future, I think both of them will be equally frequent and popular. How many, how many money safes do you see around today? Yeah. That's right. Very, very few. And the, but the, but as you, you say, there, I mean, there are that, still that, that, some. Yeah. Exactly. There still are some. And there is also one, another, um, whom did I talk about it the other day who said, oh, so you think that there will no more be passion for technology? And what I'm saying is that if you're looking at the average, you know, John Blow, that John will not have a passion for technology. That John or Mary, yeah. they don't care about their microwave brand. They don't care about the type of their washing machine. They don't care about the brand and type of their car. They just use those devices. Yeah. On the other hand, you will always have, for example, petrol heads. You will mm. always have people who are highly passionate for their cars, and they will, br they will drive just one brand, they will highly polish it, they will be really proud, they will show it all over, they will be really loud about it. And yeah. in Australia, you know the Holden petrol heads very yeah. well, I guess. Oh, yes. <laughs> the same will stay in IT as well. You know, Apple fans will be around no matter what. But the majority of people, they will, they couldn't care less is it Apple or Intel or whatever. Yeah. And again, for all the other technologies and all the other vendors, you can say the same. Right? Actually, one I'm of the things I, I thought was interesting in the lock note, you're also talking about the shakeout in the server market in, yes, in so terms of the number of manufacturers. So this is very much not so much looking into the future. It is more of a looking back what really did happen in a hardware market. And I was quite astonished. Someone first just said, why don't I go and, and look into it? And I personally didn't really believe the data, but you start to look into it further and further, and it is quite scary. So I'm mostly talking, it's a mixture of recognized brands mixed with who had any significant size of the market in a hardware business. Mm. And in 1997, you can easily go and list about 24 vendors without any big problem. And going further, so I would even say that in 1997, uh, do you remember IPEX in Australia? I don't. I, I, I vaguely, uh, well, vaguely remember it, yeah. So... In 1997, even in 2000, IPEX was on the list, and it is Australian vendor. 
in, in 2000, there were the 24 long lists went down to 14. And then in 2004, went down to 10. So those 10 in 2004 were HP, Dell, IBM, Sun, Fujitsu, NEC, Acer, SGI, Unisys, and Stratus. Well, if you're, and some of those names probably quite some of the listeners don't even recognize today, because today we have six significant vendors of, you know, server, hardware server market. HP, Dell, IBM, Fujitsu, Sun, and when I say IBM, I also mean Lenovo, right? Yeah. And NEC. So six, six, going from 24, 11 years back down to six. This consolidation is pretty intensive. But on the other side, if you look what those six vendors are producing and pumping out, that becomes even scarier because those six vendors combined, they one third of all the orders for servers they need to fulfill will go to one of the global class data centers either owned by Microsoft, Yahoo, or Google. One-third yeah, so one third of, of all everything the machines. Yeah. goes to the global class data centers. Mm. And that's where you start to realize that if you are building a real data center, you can't have anymore a single strategic partnership because the big, data, uh, the, the big uh, global class data centers are simply consuming too much, and you can't say, I will have a single contract with HP only or Dell only or anyone like that. You need to have at least two reliable providers or else, you know, it's almost like with oil. If IBM, Google, and Microsoft start to request more and more and more, the whole pipeline dries out, Mm. and then you don't get a server. What do you do then? Well, I, I have the option, right? Instead of having your own server, why don't you give this service to the cloud? Yeah. Listen, two other things that I was noting of interest there. Um, you were also mentioning the move in the data centers, and so temperature, you were suggesting Iceland was one of the, uh, the, the spots where that was all happening now. Well, it is all obvious, and even if you go to the Icelandic government website, they have a big and heavy advertisement how great Iceland is to build data centers. It is extremely cost competitive. It is totally remote and very secure, uh, technologically advanced because they are very highly uh, educated people there, only 300,000 of them though. Hmm. Now, they have a very large power resources. They, build, they produce all of their power on the, on the <coughs> geothermal sources. Hmm. Now, they have a very low cost of the land and what is probably most important for the data center, they have the most fantastic connectivity mm. because all, all of the connections, and I mean all of the cables between Europe and US, are going over Iceland. Yeah. Everything that connects Europe and US will go over Iceland. It is like the Infoban is the most, <laughs> you know, imagine to sit on the, probably it's a hexabit per second or God knows what the measurement mm. is that flows through there. If you combine all of that, it's remote, it's cold, power is free or, uh, oh, sorry, power is cheap, and you get the best position to serve both major parts of this planet, which is um, Euro-Asia on one side and U.S. on the other. 
Mm. It can't get better than that. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of a, a fascinating insight into uh, the, the shifting fortunes of the industry. That's good. Oh, yes. And again, it comes back to that, right? Technology has the power to alter reality. Closer to Australia, I'm always telling that story, and in the U.S., everyone loves it. Uh, the story about Tuvalu, and mm. many people in Australia know Tuvalu, but very few people know that you know, Tuvalu has almost no tourism, very, very low uh, potential for any export or anything. And yeah. in the past, to, Tuvalu, the only decent thing what they exported was um, phosphate. Phosphate, which yeah. Is just, <laughs> Yeah, which is just a very nice name for the bird poo. Yeah. Right? Which they scraped off the rocks and, you know, I, I, I don't even think that they processed it at all. They just shipped it over to Australia. Yeah. Um, well, until Verisign showed up and Verisign said, we want to buy your domain and we will pay $5 million per year for your domain. Can you imagine living on a little remote island in the Pacific, there are 10,000 people, and suddenly 5 million per year you get for something you didn't even know you have, yeah. which is your domain, .tv? Mm. It's worth 5 million a year. And I call them, they are an absolute overlords of the Internet. Because <laughs> they... They sit on such an asset without really knowing. The second similar one to that would be Cameroon in, in Africa. It is not so such an extreme because at first there are so many more people in Cameroon, and at second their domain is CM. So the reason why someone would want to have a domain on .cm is that many people are mistyping com and they forget O. Mm. So you want to get your domain name on whatever you are .cm as well. Yeah. So it's not so extreme as Tuvalu, but still. Yeah, but dot, dot .tv is very popular, yeah. So. Yeah, it is, indeed. Well, listen, that pretty much brings us up to time, I think. Yeah, so it's, it's a case of um, where will people see you or things or any calls to action, things that are coming up? Um, some words of wisdom, I guess, you are looking for. And definitely the first one, which I always give to everyone, even I mentor or whatever, you always need to know that past success is always your worst enemy. Past success is not something that, that should ever make you happy and slowing down and say, man, I'm good. Past success just shows that you used to be able to deliver good. Mm. Are you still able to actually? Past success is setting the bar so much higher because you already tasted the success. Are you more or less hungry for another success compared to your competitor? Mm. Usually you are less hungry, right? Yeah. Um, but otherwise, I would say to, uh, for your audience, definitely try to think beyond the next technology wave. That would be a good one to start doing. Mm. Instead of thinking what's coming in next, let's say, SQL release or what's coming in next a BI tool, try to think what will really happen to this part of the industry in the long term. What happens if you put the data away and you don't even know where it physically sits? Yeah. Is it still relevant that you do a fantastic optimization and just the right level of normalization of the database or not? Um, I would say all of those mega trends which are happening, they are 
they're not doing much. They're just changing the core fabric of society. But mm-hmm. by doing that, you need to know where, where, your, where your new placement is, yeah. both work-wise, which means how, what will you do to make money, and also society-wise, because there are huge opportunities, especially for Australia, and especially if you're thinking about someone who lives in some really remote place in Australia where although the place is nice, but no one, there's not many people much around there. I don't know. Mm. Um, let's say a remote corner of Tasmania, right? Yeah. Digital world can give you a second chance. Think about that. Mm. You can have a completely fulfilled self-esteem can grow. You can have a complete self-actualization without a necessity to move your, away from your lovely place. You don't have to go away. You don't have to go overseas. You can stay where you are. You enjoy your little local cottage or whatever it is and be someone successful money-making online. It's yeah. a big, big paradigm shift. And, of course, uh, that's uh, very much I'm leading everyone Try to explore what your job really will be, you know, in 10 years' time. Mm -hmm. It's definitely not going to be what it is today. So if you are, you know, there are three types of people. Who told me that? That was a really nice expression the other day. Someone said there are three types of people on this planet. Uh, There are people who make things happen, people who watch things happen, and then people who wonder what happened. Yeah, that's good. That's excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Mia. That's uh, lots of lots of good food for thought. Oh, pleasure was all mine. Thank you for the time.